0: You're listening to Opera Score. Uh, let's get ready to
1: rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's Talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Weston Williams and Ashley Hardgrave, and yes, even Matt Cummings. Let's get to that in a second. All right, in this episode, it's the Mother's Day show... Matt and Weston make you grateful that whatever your issues are with your mother, at least she ain't Clytemnestra. And then (laughs) listener mailbag entries abound from NYC. Plus, in the two-minute drill, (laughs) Hey, can we live without the phone for just one damn hour? Jeez. (laughs) Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher, and Spotify. You're going to click follow. Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign. It's that easy. Send us that voice memo. Email us your hot takes, opera box score at gmail.com. You're going to get the OBS beer coaster, the OBS lapel pin, just for sharing your own hot take. I just placed an order for another batch of lapel pins.
2: Ooh, and the they're new they're la- like hotcakes. The
1: new lapel pins are going to be matte finish, not glossy. <gasps>
2: Fancy. Are they going to have pictures of Matt Cummings on them? Is that what that means?
1: <sighs> they will not. <laughs> 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 no, in, I don't want it. <laughs> it's called the most exciting two minutes in sports. It's the Kentucky Derby. Did you win any money?
2: I won absolutely nothing. Uh I bet that they'd be racing uh greyhounds and I was very confused, so I was kind of starting at a disadvantage there.
1: No, that is a sport that should be banned. <laughs> yeah.
3: It's not I mean, seven horses die. Come on.
1: Yeah, that was a, a dreadful dreadful string of deaths at the Kentucky Derby this year.
3: Yeah, but you know what was not dreadful? Um all of the black quarterbacks that got picked up in the first round of the NFL mm-hmm. draft. Mm-hmm. So there were three count of three black quarterbacks that got picked up in the first round Bryce Young ended up going to the Panthers CJ Stroud went to the Texans Anthony Richardson went to the Colts that is progress and it's very exciting
1: that's exciting I did watch a rerun of the Kentucky Derby it is the most exciting two minutes in sports I always try and pick a winner just as the gates open and I never win anything at all let's talk (laughs) some opera
2: Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. It is the Mother's Day episode here on Opera Box Score. And that means that we uh, want to, you know, sit down here with you, our listeners, and really go through our uh, mommy issues with you. Uh, and what better way to do that than by sitting down and analyzing <laughs>
4: Strauss's Electra? And who better <laughs> to pay tribute to mothers than Weston Williams and me? <laughs> We said Ashley, you always get to talk about mothers. It's our turn. We we
2: had such a positive what was it? 1 2 years ago we had such a positive like episode with Mothers talking about their
4: experiences in opera mm-hmm.
2: and you know performance. And we're like, "Let's just like let's, let's just talk
4: about it... an opera where no one wants to be a mother except for one character who's like the weirdo because she's
2: too well-adjusted."
4: Uh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Electra is just one of those operas that I, I mean, it is an iconic piece of early 20th century Freudian, uh, Jungian mis- mishmash of family angst, which makes sense because it's based on, like, you know, the ancient Greek series of plays all about the curse of the House of Atreus.
4: If you don't know what that Not is. Not a lot of good family stuff happening. No. It's House of Atreus. When, yeah. When last yeah, people are met ba- our heroes.
2: People are getting baked in the pies. There's murder. There's incest. Uh, I believe, isn't it like Odysseus who like finally breaks the curse and he has to like do his whole Odysseus thing. Uh, It's, 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 it's just an absolute mess, but where, where we find where we find the opera. And I think where the, uh, where the, the allusion to motherhood and family really comes into play is in
4: Electra. And it really comes to the forefront in this adaptation. So the, the, we talked about the char- the characters of the House of Atreus. The, the actual patriarch of that f- house has since been murdered. Agamemnon, yep. who was a Greek general, was, uh, the the-, the, ma- the king who was the main general in the Trojan War. He was married to Clytemnestra, sister of Helen of Troy, the central uh, insider of the, the Trojan War. <laughs> he comes home from war and is murdered by his wife and her uh, mistress, Manstress, Aegisthus. Uh, oh, we may just say...
2: Keeping it all tied into the theme here, bad thing for a mom to do.
4: Yeah, not great, not great, not great to kill the father. Uh, and part of the reason why she had decided that she had to murder Agamemnon is because he sacrificed one of their children, Iphigenia, Iphigenie, to get good wins for the war. Maybe not great father then, but, uh, yeah. you know, who's keeping score? who's counting? Nor, Nor were the wins that great. That war famously <laughs> took a very long time. <laughs> So there remaining two children, uh, two, two children from the actual myths and another child that was invented by Sophocles. Uh, the two children from myth are Electra, their daughter, and Orestes, the son, who is, who, who is the going, going to be the Avenger. And then there is this invented daughter, Chrysotimus, who is the, she, she is contrasted with Electra by being uh, the normal, well-adjusted one who just wants people to get along. Electra however is not just in in mourning and in and in denial but she has like fully sublimated every single aspect of her humanity over towards like rage and bloodlust towards mm. her mother and Agistus. Uh, she li- is living in the courtyard in the stables. The whole, the first scene of the opera is all the maids talking about how absolutely off her rocker Electra has become because she is basically just this feral creature who hates, hates, hates her mother and wants her dead and has no other reason for living. And and so this opera was an adaptation of the Sophocles play, but it, it, you really see the influences of like, uh, of the early days of psychoanalysis uh, with the the Freudian Jungian ideas uh, of what drives people and what they're right. looking for and, you know, what sort of motivations there are, as well as, like, the expressionist and modern influences of things like dissonance and kind of a, this stream of consciousness narrative. There's a lot of, you know, symbols that don't actually mean anything. They are just symbols to represent abstract concepts like rage or like losing your identity uh as mm-hmm. and, and really can't be interpreted literally uh, yeah, that, or
2: that... you could you could just say they can't be interpreted liber- literally but often they're sexual as well <laughs> as well because this is this is also very freudian the, freud was very much the rage around this time period uh and i i will say like you know i might make some Hardcore Freudians, a little bit mad uh, when I say this. Uh, I don't know how many of those there are these days. Um, but uh, Freud, essentially, what he was doing as a as a as a sort of pseudo-philosopher uh, psycholo- early psychologist was slash a really <laughs> slash pervert. Um, he, he really would reach into ancient Greek ideas. Like, uh, I think the big go-to example, id, ego, and superego is
4: literally lifted
2: from Aristotle, you know? Mm-hmm. this is No, this Freud is...
4: came up with that, Weston. <laughs> uh,
2: but, but these kinds of things, like, it, it is very much in the tradition of psychoanalysis at this period of time to look back at ancient Greek myths and try to pull out the essential part of those myths uh, without the trappings of modern society and just like finding stripping down the family to its core and what was viewed by the intelligentsia of the time as being this weird sort of um, weirdly Almost perverted, you know, family unit. Uh, that's uh, that's often, and in, in we're talking about, you know, royalty in Europe, literally incestuous. You yeah. know, there's there's very much a um, uh, a relevance. The thing I, I when I was doing research for this, I actually found out that the term elect the the idea of the Electra complex actually came four years after this opera, yeah. which kind of blew my mind a little bit. I had no idea. That's of course the the Jungian answer to the um, uh, Oedipus complex, basically the gender swapped version of that. Yeah, you know, that, that uh,
4: girls are competing with their mothers for the affection of their exactly. fathers.
2: Exactly, and you can really see that idea, the, that idea in this play, really stripped down to its bare essentials in the opera through this modernist lens of like, this is the essential, gross corrupt sexual humanity at the center of all this it's and it's it's such a great
4: pairing with greek drama because so many of the important moments of greek drama have to deal with this like chain of confrontations right which is very much it comes from the sophocles and it's very much how hoffman continued to structure the libretto um and by like weaving those psychosexual ideas of Um, the pathological hatred that every character seems to have for each other, this self-perpetuating cycle of violence, and the sexual aberration that's really, like, at Mm -hmm. the root of all of this conflict. Um, He took something that was from antiquity and really, like, brought it roaring into the earliest 20th century, where it met up with Richard Strauss, who was in his impression— sorry, expressionist, not impressionist— expressionist era rejecting traditional beauty in in order to convey the powerful feelings of music there there's a couple um quotes from the 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 philosopher music critic theodore adorno about eliminating traditional music's conventional elements everything formulaically rigid to create this sort of primal scream Mm. uh so that the anything that's harmonious and affirmative is banished and it really lives in the conflict and like in the bad place uh, and <laughs> it, so. it's it's essentially like almost two hours of very dissonant waltzing that you're asked to do, yeah. and that kind <laughs> of, of dance um, music, yeah. Uh, that that contrast is part of what makes the opera so compelling, and what what makes these characters um, both so complicated but also so easy to understand as full mm-hmm, people mm-hmm, instead mm-hmm. of as um, just tropes.
2: Yeah, exactly. This is, and uh, uh, I see here another Adorno quote. Also, I hate jazz, but, but that doesn't really apply here. Uh, let's let's turn now to we're. T- this is Mother's Day. We're talking about uh, moms here. So let's focus for a moment on the f- the least favorite daughter. Uh, our good titular friend Electra.
4: The least favorite still living daughter. <laughs> the least favorite
2: still living. Yeah, okay. We got we got the, the list here, the, the flow chart of where she lies
4: in the family hierarchy. What's her deal, Matt? So she has really been driven basically to the point of madness out of this by this lust for revenge to her father's death. All she thinks about is killing her mother and kill and and her lover that, that have so betrayed the family by murdering agamemnon when he returned from war uh the only joy that she experiences in the whole opera come from this thought of revenge and mm. she has become so unrecognizable in her current existence she's living in the stables her own brother Orestes, when he does come back in in disguise spoiler alert doesn't even recognize <laughs> her uh and she kind she's she she sings this short kind of monologue to how she sacrificed everything about her looks and everything about her identity, but it's all kind of worth it because like she knows where the ax is buried and she's going to make sure that uh, death comes to those who deserve it. Uh, Her music is really anchored by the Agamemnon theme Mm -hmm. that it, that is the fanfare that opens the opera uh, and really anchors down her her monologue right at the beginning uh, because she is just obsessed with him and it this may show how she cherishes her idea of childhood compared to this almost dystopian life that she's living right now this idea of being her father's daughter is really has taken over her full identity
2: yeah i don't want to be an armchair psychologist here but it sounds like she might have a bit of an electric complex
4: there are times in the opera where she talks about other things, but they're almost always manipulating those characters. Like there's a long, it, she has a couple interactions with her younger sister, Crusodemus, and we're going to talk about their relationship later. But the second one of these big scenes is like almost a seduction scene yeah. where she ta- where she sings to her about like how strong she is and how ready she is to be able to like come in and take up arms and be a partner in murdering their mother but this this dream of retribution like fully possesses her and becomes her everything and in in some ways this embodies um a rejection of the expectations uh, of women at the age uh it's a rejection of everything that w- that that the society going to see electra in 1909 would have considered to be the trappings of humanity and 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 especially femininity
2: yes very much so. This is very much a time when uh, I, I feel like we tend to associate the Victorian era with being kind of uptight and, and constricted, which certainly was the case in a lot of ways. But there was also this breakdown, um, this, um, this early modern radical reinterpretation of what communities and families could and should be. Or in the case of this really early, you know, 1909 to 1915-ish, what families are but should not be, <laughs> um, there's, there's a sense that, you know, uh, if you strip away the trappings of this, like, overly polite, overly mannered society, this is what you get. You get this ugliness. You get this um, absolute despair that you can hear in this, you know primal scream in mm. in her first aria a line vagans a line alone uh wholly alone you know it's just a uh, it is so so deep and it just digs in you
4: and a lot of the ways that strauss chooses to depict this uh to d- depict her character is by giving her by far the widest range of musical uh both in terms of like Actual range of notes that she has to sing and also range of styles so that she's always slithering in and out of her actual um, like primal pain and into these kind of manipulative modes where she's trying to coax people into helping her get what she wants, which is revenge against her mother. And yep. this utter rejection of anything related to familial love, of anything related to motherly duty, would have been a very, very shocking 115 years ago, and was <laughs> meant to be. Uh, so let's hear a little bit of a clip of how uh, one of our Hall of Fame members handles this this musical <laughs> moment from from her, uh, from her that opening monologue. This is uh, the clip of Astrid Varnay in the in her full recording of the opera singing allein wie ganz allein <laughs>
2: Absolute range of what the orchestra is doing is wild. Uh, Harmonically, orchestrally, this opera is doing something that you never had never really seen before. It gets about as close as you can get to that, you know, uh, that line that says atonality lies beyond, you know, um, but the the way strauss starts constructing phrases especially in a line big line, uh, uh, uh orchestral phrases and timbres, especially is very much doing what he's doing uh what hofmansthal is doing in the libretto it's breaking down this family unit into its primal psychological impulses strauss really starts an electra composing on overtones in a really interesting way which he does even more later on in um uh, especially in Frau ohne mm-hmm. and uh, Rosenkavalier, but the way he like builds these big brassy and string chords, finding like uh, harmonics that 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 resonate on a primal level, but don't really fit in with the conventional diatonic way of composing, really, really gets gives you the sense that um, things are not just broken because of a, a, a normal family structure. This is something
4: broken at the core of these people having this conflict. And he deploys it in such specific ways. And yeah. I think especially in the confrontation that kind of is the linchpin of the opera. Uh the the second of the three big confrontations that Electra has with these other characters in her family, and that is the one with Mommy Dearest Clytemnestra herself.
2: Ah, uh, the titular mother for the Mother's Day episode. <laughs> 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 yeah, she's um she's a, a piece of work. Um as we know, like she's you know, she did have her other daughter, uh, get sacrificed, so that might explain why she's a little, a little, a little mean. But I, I, I do want to say like this is this is very much um, an opera where it strips away a lot of the backstory, so you mm-hmm. don't necessarily know that in this presentation, and you just get Electra's perspective as like a daughter who doesn't necessarily fully understand her mother as a person, um, but knows that what she's do, what she has done since she's been old enough to understand. You know why these decisions are being made the- these decisions have been
4: terrible yeah <laughs> and what you do know is that even though Clytemnestra absolutely despises Electra and dis- and you know wants her banished wants her locked away in a tower the one the child that she's afraid of is the one who is not there of Orestes. Mm. so she brings her whole retinue out into the courtyard to get Electra's perspective on these horrible horrible nightmares <laughs> that she has been take. having uh, let me get, yeah, what do you think about these terrible dreams of Orestes who are haunting me? Can I sacrifice a horse? Can I sacrifice a goat? And Electra kind of goes, no, it has to be a person. And she says, oh, which person? And Electra goes, oh, you know which person. And Clannamnestra's like, I don't know which person. Please tell me. I need to know this. I need to know this right now. I'm I will so... kill literally anybody to stop having these dreams. And Electra's like, it's you, you bitch. <laughs>
2: once again, Freud, dream interpretation. There you go. It's uh, it,
4: it's all in one great package. And so Clytemnestra's music in this whole scene is marked by this lack of tonality. It's mm. it, it's it's usually bitonal, meaning the music's kind of in two keys at the same time. Uh, and and with, with like a lot of whole tones, which when you take out any sort of half step from a scale and just have whole tone, then if all the notes are the same relationship to each other, really any note could be any note. And so whole tone and, and bitonal music like that tends to make you feel very adrift. You have no kind of anchor, no home base where you feel like you're coming back to at rest. Mm -hmm. Uh, George Bernard Shaw described this scene as, is there anywhere such an atmosphere of malignant and cancerous evil as we get here? (laughs) And that, (laughs) That really comes across in the music, uh that, that kind of the the rotting away of any kind of tonal or cultural order. Uh um one of the musicologists who's written about this opera a lot calls it a contaminated residue of otherness that can neither be contained nor banished. Ooh, juicy. <laughs> And if you think about what what got us here from the perspective of Clytemnestra, it's not only her rejection of her children and her hatred for her children, but it's also her still experiencing her own sexual desire, something that's not mm. very motherly in the idea of early twentieth century um, restrictive views of what it means to be a woman in society. And Electra really wants her mother dead as much for infidelity towards her father as for the murder itself. Yeah. Uh, So let's hear a little bit of this like brood and crude and chromatic music that, that Strauss writes for Clytemnestra that is really supposed to make your stomach churn.
2: hearing uh that clip you know what comes to mind happy mother's day (laughs) happy mother's day everyone (laughs) that i i just i mean the music really is so like guttural and just you know it's disturbing but not in the way you would expect music written in 1909 by most composers to be disturbing you know Mm -hmm. uh it's and and it's such a great a great expression of who she is as a, as a character, as a mother. Uh, We know exactly what we're supposed to feel about her, but the music doesn't give us any clue as to why she's that way. You know, no, it's you're just like,
4: dropped in in the middle of this courtyard, and you have to figure out with your own gut instincts as much as anyone else does. She's
2: literally a force of nature. We didn't play a clip earlier, but the uh, but you even her entrance music just builds to this terrifying crescendo like a like a like a it reminds me of like the giants coming over the hill in 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 Rheingold you know um but it's just a mother but that but that's again in this Freudian era that we're talking about Mm. mother is monster mother is monster and uh and no mother is more monster than Clytemnestra
4: and so the third prong of this trident of women of the house of Atreus is the The composite character, the invented character, Chrysotimus. Uh, And she, in many ways, is the most straightforward character in terms of her wants and her willingness to play the role that would be sketched out for her in a normal society. She's the domestic sister. She longs for normalcy and is constantly begging Electra to stop seeking vengeance so that she, Chrysotimus, can get married and have kids and have a normal life. She doesn't want to protest or seek vengeance against their mother. And so when Electra greets her at the very at her first entrance in the in the opera, she refers to her as daughter of my mother. She's linked to <laughs> Clytemnestra. There's a there's a contrast that's drawn immediately. And what Strauss does throughout the opera is he goes back and forth between them being at opposite poles of their relationship, and to have them like weaving in and out of each other's voices, like fully of the same, full like fully united in terms of what it is that they're doing at the mm, end. Mm. Um, I would not call Chrysotomus stable. She's just as desperate as every as everyone else. It's just that she's desperate for what she's supposed to want. Right. And so her music is uh the one one writer described it as almost being overripe. It's very old-fashioned compared to everything else that happens in this opera. It's really clear-cut in its tonality and it's almost like vulgar in terms of how much melody there is <laughs> when she sings about how she wants to what how she wants to have what women want.
2: Yeah, it is it is it feels confined in a way that Electra, as 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 deeply depressed as she gets in all of her uh, in all of her music, she she feels so free tonally to do whatever she wants. And and Crystal is just like, uh, you know, she's the she's society. She's just the the boring cookie cutter wife in this truly atrocious situation. It's always so funny to me whenever I see this opera, because. You're like, oh, here's the E flat major section. <laughs> Directors have so much trouble, like dressing her up in a way that makes sense for the music, right? Because usually the background is like cracked, dark, uh, bloody, ancient Greek, and Crystal Tennis just kind of comes in as like, here's my here's my okay music. I'm like, how are you? Why are you like this? It's more <laughs> concerning that you're not like the others. <laughs>
4: you know? She is a re- she's a reaction against her mother just as much as Electra is. She just goes in the opposite direction. So at the end of the opera, Clytemnestra is dead. Orestes has killed both her and Aegisthus. Electra is fully unleashed. This is the fulfillment of all of her desires, of her innermost, uh, of her innermost e- id, uh, and <laughs> her the earlier seduction kind of of her sister that we talked about before. Um, and she dances herself to death in ecstasy which approaches not just as a happy ending but as like kind of the only ending possible there's nothing left of electra once her mother is dead because her re- her her revenge has been consummated
2: some people will literally dance to death in an ecstasy of vengeance rather than go to
4: therapy <laughs> and electra's ecstasy here is so much that it can even sweep her sister away on the wave with her she, you know, they, they sing this duet where their voices intertwine and they take turns being the top voice, um, and it. But uh, but uh, but she and she hopes that her life can begin at last. But eventually, she rejects this union with Electra uh, and runs back over to Orestes and has to like has to really uphold these values of society that are just too central of her to give up. And the fact that Chrysodimus, the marshalin and Zerbinetta. Were all premiered by the same singer remains That's one wild. of those facts that I like that you just can't make up. That's
2: so, so bizarre.
4: When when you hear this clip of a uh, 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 this outro clip, both from the one before of Deborah Void and this this outro that we'll play for you in a second of Deborah Void and Alessandra Mark, just try to picture her singing uh, "Grossmächtige <laughs> <laughs> Prinzessin."
2: With that, we can say from all of us here at Opera Box Score,
4: Happy Mother's Day, and we hope your children aren't planning to kill you this weekend. <laughs>
0: yeah, you got something to say? Then yeah, all right, you can say something. This is Listener Mailbag.
1: Into the Listener Mailbag, we got a two entries this week, and one of them is actually a two-parter, which we're gonna split up more about on that in a second. PJ in NYC says, quote, I, I was chatting with a major opera fan at the Met last night at the La Boheme intermission. You're going to get that audio in a second. This guy had been to four operas in the last four days, and Ooh. apparently one of those was champion. And he had been at the fight between Emile Griffith and Benny Perret. And appara- apparently in the crowd, everybody knew what was going on. They were stopping. They wanted the ref to stop the fight." Paray went down, didn't get up. Paramedics apparently put him on a gurney and wheeled him three blocks down 8th Avenue to the hospital. Wow. Jesus. I thought that was crazy. That's wild. This is what PJ thought of the Zeffirelli Boheme.
5: Oh, Opera Box Score, the memories. I remember all the productions in the past of seeing La Boheme at the Met with the Zeffirelli production. It is a thrill to be back. It's a beautifully exciting Tuesday night. Uh, The the house is really on fire. Everyone's enjoying every second of this. The arias and all the stuff from Bohem. of course you can't go wrong there. The singing is wonderful. We're enjoying Silvia Doramo making her big moment, her big debut really on the Met stage. I've seen her sing uh, in recital in other places. I've met her once. Very exciting to see Sylvia kind of have a big, big moment on the the stage. Of course, I don't need to tell you anything about the production or any of the highlights. It's just embedded in all of our DNA at this point, particularly this production, the Zeffirelli production. I hope they never, ever change it. Uh, It's like an old, grand old dame, right? Uh, As they say in sports, Juventus. They call her the Grand Old Lady, and in this case, I think this is kind of one of the Grand Old Ladies of the opera. Thanks for listening. I'm excited to report to you always. It's another great night here at the Metropolitan Opera. Goodbye, Opera (laughs) Box (laughs) Score. That's Finn saying goodbye. We'll talk again. Look, I
1: love PJ. Otherwise, I wouldn't have him on the show the whole time. We Here, love
3: PJ. Here's
1: where we're going to have to disagree. <laughs> I, I don't think Zeffirelli should be in anyone's DNA. Like, I'm so allergic <laughs> to those productions. I, I get his point, but like, I, he and I would need to have a little chat about whether or not those productions have or even had merit at any point.
2: Well, we can we can put you both in the champion boxing ring and see what happens.
1: That I would definitely lose, I think. (laughs) And Niusha, also at NYC, they wrote in, uh, they've corresponded with us before, and responded to both Champion and Lohengrin at the Met. Now, their Lohengrin response is complex, and we're going to save that part for next show so we can give it the time that it deserves Mm -hmm. on Champion- they say, quote, considering how experimental it was with a lot of choreography and professional dancers and its diverse cast of racial and gender identities, I wasn't expecting to see it at the Met. You <laughs> go yeah. on to say, <laughs> Ryan Spina Green was brilliant and otherworldly beautiful as the young Emil. I think Oliver would have liked seeing him in the boxing ring finding other beautiful men.
3: Uh-huh. Just Oliver.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they go on to say, Yannick Sega entered the orchestra pit in black silk boxing robes. <laughs> <Hot>. <laughs> I had not. I think even I would be a little excited about that. I, that's, a little Twitter padded? A little Twitter padded? I, I think that's cool. I, I'll, I'll, I'll save that for Yannick, and we're going to get to him again later on the show. That's that's guts. That's guts. Let's get to that part yeah. right now. Two-minute drill.
0: This just in the two minute drill.
1: All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week.
2: The official album of The Coronation is already out, released the same day the crown jewels touched Charles III's royal little head. Coronation album, a new work composed by Andrew Lloyd Webber, is featured as well as. All music played during the event. Singers at the coronation included Sir Bryn Terfel, Pretty Yende, and Roderick Williams, as well as conductors John Elliott Gardner and Antonio Papano.
3: Washington National Opera is distancing itself from season sponsor General Dynamics, a military contractor, after announcing the premiere of Grounded, an opera exploring the psychological toll of drone warfare next season. The creative team said, quote, no sponsor or supporter of WNO had any involvement in the creation of Grounded or in the contents of its libretto. WNO has also changed its website to clarify General Dynamics as a WNO season sponsor rather than a presenting sponsor for the opera itself.
1: Central City Opera has offered a four-year contract to AGMA saying, quote, "...AGMA actively allowed its contract with Central City to expire last August, thereby leaving its members without an agreement. Should the labor union choose not to sign the contract offered by us, the two organizations (laughs) will engage in federal mediation." (laughs) <laughs> to reach resolution before the summer festival, there's no basis for Agma's threat of a work stoppage.
2: Yannick Nizay Sagan stopped a Philadelphia orchestra concert not once but twice due to ringing cell phones. Uh, there was no mention of what he was wearing at the time. Probably wasn't the silk boxing ropes, but maybe it was. <laughs> uh, the first interruption happened in a slow, quiet pre- passage of Bruckner's Ninth, causing Nizay mm-hmm. Sagan to stop and restart the movement. When a phone rang out again around the same point, he turned to the audience and asked, can we live without the phone for just one damn hour? The conductor told the Philadelphia Enquirer that he was fed up after hearing at least four rings before finally stopping the show. Liverpool
1: and Manchester are front runners to be the new home of English national opera after Arts Council England's decision to slash funding for the company earlier this year. ENO CEO Stuart Murphy said, Three finalist cities would be selected by the end of May and added Liverpool and Manchester were, quote, strong contenders. Bristol, Birmingham and Nottingham are also in the running.
3: Valerie Gergev has at least one fan, Vladimir Putin. Gergiev was awarded the, let me get this right, Order for Services to the Fatherland Second Degree by the Kremlin for, quote, an invaluable (laughs) contribution to Russian culture and the arts. That's a lot of words and paperwork for you're one of the only musicians who still talks to me after all those war crimes I did.
2: (laughs) Oh, God. Sesto Quattrini will step down as artistic director of the Lithuanian National Opera at the end of June. He announced the departure with an open letter expressing his admiration for Lithuanian audiences and people. Quattrini will return next season as a guest conductor for Aida and the Tales of Hoffman.
1: Well, it's the major award. The 2023 Pulitzer Prize for Music is going to Rhiannon Giddens and Michael Abels for their opera Omar, which premiered last year at Spoleto. The opera is based on a 1931 memoir of Ibn Saeed, a Muslim man who was captured in North Africa and enslaved in South Carolina.
3: Exit stage right, Grace Bumbry. Who had one of the most illustrious operatic careers of the 20th century and was the first black singer to perform at the paris opera and the Bayreuth festival has died she was 86 years old her death following effects from a stroke in october was confirmed in a statement by the met where she performed more than 200 times over two decades obs will dedicate a segment to miss bunbury on a future episode
1: czech mezzo-soprano sonja has died at the age of 97. Jovenia was a guest singer at the Berlin State Opera in East Berlin when she emigrated to the West in 1962 through the last open crossing in the Berlin Wall. The Iron Curtain kept her outside her country for 30 years. She was particularly known for Carmen, but played over 110 roles in her career, even performing as recently as last year in Rome.
2: And on this day, May 8th, in 1829, it was the birth of American composer and pianist Louis Moreau Gottschalk. In 1846, Oscar Hammerstein, the German-American opera composer and impresario, was born. Not to be confused with the second version of that. In 1863, Italian soprano Ces- uh, Cesira Ferrani was born. She created the role of Mimi in Bohème and Manon in Manon Lescaut* by Puccini. In 1930, it was the birth of Irish soprano Heather Harper in Belfast. In 1932, Italian tenor Carlo Casutta was born in Italy, and happy birthday to English soprano Felicity Lott born on this day in 1947. We have some premieres here. In 1893, it was the first performance of Rachmaninoff's Aleko in Moscow. In 1894, the following year, Massenet's The Portrait of Manon was premiered in Paris. In 1946, Giancarlo Monotti's opera The Medium premiered in New York City. And in 1996, Lowell Lieberman's opera The Picture of Dorian Gray premiered at Monte Carlo Opera.
1: And that's your two-minute drill.
0: Viva, viva, grazie al nume.
2: That was a bit of Grace Bumbrey singing the uh, <laughs> a duet with herself from Aida, which is just a wacky, wacky recording. Whenever a musician does something like that, it's always the highlight of an album. It's like, I'm just going to be both. And, you know, Grace Bumbrey really was what a career if anyone deserves to do a duet with herself it, w- it was her for sure
3: well and that was one of her things i mean a of all i am heartbroken we just got this news i haven't even processed my feelings about it yet but that was something that she was really proud of was the fact that her instrument her voice could sing both of these mm-hmm. roles she originally exactly. started out as a mezzo yeah. she ended up going up into things that were higher but she never really lost like that spectrum she's got the zenith and the nadir so she really could do all of those things. And I am looking forward to having Matt on a future episode where he goes absolutely ham on another Grace Bumbry tribute that will be coming (laughs) shortly. That
1: that is going to be do not miss. Uh, Weston, did you watch the coronation? I did not. (laughs) Ashley, did you?
3: I watched bits and bops of it. And I I saw a couple of clips afterwards. How about you? I I watched it three times.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a what? drink for all of you playing at home.
3: This is not surprising in any way, so, but go on. I, so I
2: got up at 4.30 Central.
3: <laughs> oh, lordy.
2: Now, did you watch it three times in a row, or did you have it on three screens in, like, surround sound, just like, <laughs> bathing in it?
1: So I watched it live, and, I, and then Saturday, you know, then Sunday, it's all a bit of a blur because I was up like Sunday, <laughs> I went back and I just uh, watched all the music stuff. And then today, I I found the official order of service, and then kind of had that on one half of my screen, <laughs> and then the the coronation on the other half. This we will probably get another coronation in our lifetime, you know, the, the folks of of our generation. Um, but but many people will not. It's a very special event, and what makes it so special has to be the music. Look, I am not a royalist. I am not a monarchist. I don't even think King Charles is that going to be that interesting a monarch but the music at this event it is the absolute best of english composers british singers at the absolute peak of their game you you speak about the coronation album i haven't gotten to that yet but i will
3: well the coronation <laughs> album uh i'm looking at it on spotify and it is And it's not just the music. It's the entire service. Eucharistic prayer, Lord's Prayer, the whole thing. It is 66 tracks long. Um, (laughs) But what I will tell you is that there is some sangin' and I mean sangin' on this album. So I think it's definitely worth your time to peek through, hit the highlights. But yeah, there are 66 tracks on this album.
2: (laughs) It's a must here for all you Zadok, the priest fans out there. I
3: mean, I love Zadok so much.
0: <laughs>
1: Where was that from again, George? Per- Handel, Purcell, Gibbons, <laughs> Walton, <laughs> Perry... I mean, these are titans of British composition. The, the service did such a great job of spreading its languages across all the languages that are spoken in the UK, not just English. The real letdown, unsurprisingly, was Andrew Lloyd Webber's contribution. Shocking. It is Shocking. not interesting. It is too low <laughs> for the tenor section. You can hear the tenors straining to get down there. It was completely... Forgettable.
2: And I was really thrown off when the chandelier came crashing down on the royal family <laughs> halfway
1: through. General Dynamics and Washington National <laughs> Opera trying to sort stuff out here. I mean, look, we all Ooh. know that the only things that, that matter in D.C. are politics, right? So obviously General Dynamics <laughs> is, is going to throw in whatever fraction of their annual profits to
2: support. It's all about that military-industrial Opera complex, I guess. This is this is kind of wild. I mean, Jeez. I I feel like my uh, uh my, my big take on the coronation, I feel like, uh is kind of related to the general dynamics. Okay, go take.
1: on. <laughs> Just
3: go guys. on. Can't wait to see you thread this needle. We're listening. We're, we're listening.
2: <laughs> well, so much of what what we listen to in opera houses in the so-called classical, you know, Western art music world is so tied to these large donors right these these Mm -hmm. big powerful old forces that aren't necessarily relevant or are actively destructive um to the world we live in Mm -hmm. um uh, uh and it's uh and you know i i think that's not a particularly spicy take except to maybe some of our british listeners for the coronation but i don't think it's a very spicy take for um people when it comes to general dynamics and i think the the great irony is that um general dynamics has actually been uh, helping fund WNO for almost thirty years now. Yeah, it only came uh, to a head
1: when it turned out that they were going to do this opera, grounded. Exactly, which, which
2: sounds like a pretty good opera. Um, it's going to be, uh, I think Emily, Emily D'Angelo is going to be in it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which it, we, and she's great. Um, but this is this is one of those things where it really throws that irony into stark relief. You know, I I always think that you know the only reason. That a lot of these big donors and big corporate uh, entities, uh, you know, donate to the operas because sometimes because they don't know what's actually being put on stage and they don't know how subversive the arts can actually be. They just kind of assume this is entertainment for white, old, wealthy elites, which in many ways, it unfortunately has been catered to those people. But uh, I think that uh, we really need to find a way to, to divest ourselves as an art form from oil companies, defense contractors, all well, this, this kind this of things. This is thing, what you know? the
1: Royal Opera House did. The Royal Opera House was, was being sponsored by Shell or BP, I think. Yeah, and yeah, they yeah. were like, no, we're, we're not having that anymore.
2: Yeah, and this is one of those I, I, I get that it's difficult to fund your opera. It's an, it's it's such an expensive art form if you're doing it on a on a grand scale. I mean, unless you're doing like, you know, a storefront production, you know, the, they the can opera do for- The opera is
1: about the damage the collateral damage of drones In the form of PTSD Does anyone really think General Dynamics Is like trying to promote That narrative
3: I mean (laughs) that's how you know The check was already Written and deposited Because if anybody At General Dynamics Had actually done any homework They probably would have Yanked that funding Right back
2: well, that, that that's the thing. Like, I feel like you know a lot of the online outrage was was partially because, like, well, are they going to portray it in the in a bad light, uh, in a in a good light rather the the drone warfare? I don't think that's going to be the case. No. But no it one's is... pro
3: drone ever. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it, it is a well, matter of like the bagpipes, I guess. Anyway. It, it, it is the fa- the hand that is feeding WNO, and uh, there are other hands that are similarly nefarious, I'm sure, especially when you're talking about Washington D.C. Um, and uh and uh, it's just one of those things we need to we need to find alternative alternative modes of funding ideally as democratized as possible um and this is just a one of i think an increasing number of stories we'll see about uh, about you know big harmful donors uh funding our favorite opera companies you know and it's uh it's kind of a shame
3: well the one thing i will say is that uh you can tell that i mean they're, they're doing a little bit of acrobatics to try to change the wording of the sponsorships but wno isn't backing down from actually doing the piece so yeah, in true. a way it's like i am gonna take your money and then i'm gonna shit talk you so yeah, yeah. in, in I mean, some ways i, would, it's be I respect
2: that to a certain extent i mean it, it's <laughs> we'll see how far they go and, and also like I, I i will say like I think there is a lot, I don't think there's like direct pressure on them to be like changes to make the drone warfare sound positive or whatever. But there when you're in these situations, there's like a almost a subconscious like pressure to like not go too far, to not push the envelope too far. Um, I would love them to just go like absolutely just like go to the wall and just tear General Dynamics specifically apart. I don't know if they could get away with that, but like that—that would—that would be the only thing that would make me feel better about this, you know, if they really use their mm-hmm. money to to stick it to them specifically. Yeah. Um, But uh, we'll see what happens. I I I think, independent of the funding, it has the potential to be a really interesting show. Uh, we'll see what happens. We'll, and we'll see if they st- if they stay with the funding going apparently, forward.
1: Apparently, we're gonna see what happens to this Arts Council England. Eno, yeah no i mean what is this Olympics? picks like we're trying to pick like an Olympic host city it's like well these are the <laughs> these are the sort of finalists i, I again i i do not understand liverpool and manchester are under consideration because they're very big cities and they're they're for the north they have active cultural lives they they, yeah. they don't need to add in an opera company to like improve themselves it's the same with birmingham i'm impressed that that Bristol's in the running, I think that'd be an excellent choice. It, it's too far south in the country. It's too too close to London. But the way that this is being handled is just is so grotesque. It, it's Ugh. almost like a sort of a popularity competition or something. Yeah. It it's it's gonna. I don't know if it's gonna end in tears. the 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 central city agma thing it is gonna end in tears. I said this <laughs> at the end of last year that there wouldn't. This is my prediction that there wouldn't be a cco season this summer and i'm going to be vindicated <laughs> based on the 2 minute drill extra that we just had on the show you're going to see it is not going to end well
2: yeah i i i i think you're probably right this is this is not this is not a proposal that is like we think we might actually be able to get them to agree on this this is a you know double bird kind of statement from a cco uh, against agma I don't well, think like it's gonna federal happen. Federal
1: mediation, really? Federal yeah, mediation, that yeah. could take months. That yeah. could take absolute yeah. months. It's early May.
3: Uh, yeah, and that stuff's supposed to start when? In like, I don't know, forty, forty five minutes. But um yeah, and the thing <laughs> is the the date on the date on the press release is later than when it got released on the website. I think it was postmarked like may 5th or something and then it was actually yeah. put out like a day or two before that
2: Whoops. um Whoops.
3: yeah oops poops i mean listen we we are <laughs> they, they actually
2: they actually briefly took down the post as well i will say uh when when you between when they initially posted it and when you put it in the link to our document there was a period of a, at least a day where i clicked on it and it was a 404 message
3: which is exactly why I screenshotted it when I saw it. Um, now listen, <laughs> at, at the end of the day, we are a union household over here. I am an AGMA member, so I will always be fighting on the side of Same, performers naturally. for living yeah. wages. Um, but this is, I mean, the the posturing that was put in this statement was borderline laughable. Yeah. Uh, everything about the biggest chunk of these negotiations has been public. So to, to allege that they just let this contract expire so that yeah. they could go into this big, <laughs> you know, <laughs> knockdown drag out nanoseconds before a summer festival is supposed to start. now I don't buy it.
0: Good call. Bad call. On opera box score.
1: One wow, of those shows where so many of our stories, we got lucky and they came out on the day we taped. We did miss a couple things from a couple weeks ago. I'm going to get to that in my, Good call, bad call, but I'll make some space first. Weston Williams,
2: I have a uh, a good call. It's kind of a cute little uh, 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 story from the New York Times about the children's book author Mo Willems. Oh yes, uh, who, absolutely. Uh, who I'm sure you're very familiar with by now, John. <laughs> I've
1: read, his, I've read his books approximately 10,000 times.
2: Well, good news. He is getting into libretto writing, which I think is just so charming. Yes. Um, because, you know, I, I, I think children's book authors honestly would make such great librettists because everything has to be spoken aloud and has to sound good and, and like convey a lot with not very much text. And that is perfect for uh, for a libretto. Um, and uh, this is just a, a great little uh, story talking about Willem's uh, little pass, uh, little passion for classical music and opera, and how he's starting to get uh, get uh, get involved in uh, uh, you know writing some like little little one act operas. And I think it's I think it's great. I think it's a lot of fun. well,
1: he could he could do the scenic design as well. I mean, if David Hockney yeah, yeah. can design, yeah, he could do anything. You know, he's such a good wordsmith. He's sort of just on the the hill. He's at the bottom of the hill, approaching, like, Stephen Sondheim in terms of uh, Willem's ability to, mm, to mm. find rhymes. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave.
3: Uh, you can always count on me for some musical but decidedly not operatic content, and today is going to be no different. Um, I... I'm going to recommend an album to you, and I'm going to charge listeners and I'm going to charge you, Weston and George, to check into this. Um, it's going to be an album by a gentleman named T Pain. T Pain. Yes. Of Buy You a Drank fame. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I unironically love T Pain. I love him so much, it hurts. He's an incredible musician. If you have not seen his tiny desk concert, yes. it's wonderful. The it's really is, good. <laughs> People know him for this auto tune. The only reason he did that is because he needed a gimmick when people weren't paying attention to his legitimate voice and musicianship. So, the album that I want to recommend is uh, something called On Top of the Covers. It actually came out maybe about a month ago, maybe the end of March. It's all cover songs and it is absolutely incredible. Um, He covers Frank Sinatra, he covers Journey, he covers (laughs) Black Sabbath. It is incredible. The man has range. The man has a good voice. And it's just, he's just such a lovely human. His podcasts are hilarious. He's a good musician. He doesn't get enough credit. So this is me cheering for T-Pain in the corner and telling you to listen to on top of the covers. It's great.
1: Bad call from me. One of the things we did miss because we were off for the OBS retreat, which was yikes was uh, Jerry Springer died on April 27th. That's not Mm. new news. That's not really related to opera, unless, of course, it's Jerry Springer, the opera.
2: Yes. Uh, Also, I have a double connection here because I used to, fun fact, work in retail at a Barnes & Noble, and Jerry Springer at this particular Barnes & Noble was a a repeat customer, and it was always funny because whenever we'd have someone new, they'd be over the radio being like, I think Jerry Springer's in here. Uh, exactly. And that, that's always what I think about. It <laughs> yeah. goes, it goes that, and then the opera that's about him, that's and right. then everything else he did. That's
1: right. Well, he he went to Northwestern, and he lived in Evanston, Illinois. Yeah, I think exactly. maybe when he
3: passed away, he was living in Evanston. He, he was in the burbs. Yeah, he was in he the burbs. Has yeah. A lot of Chicago connections. Yeah. His, uh, you know, his television show taped here for years.
1: Taped here, yeah, on, on North Columbus Ave. I think it was. Jerry Springer, the opera, I will never forget it. The summer of 2002, I was in London and I got to see it at the National Theater. It was was and is and will be one of the best shows I think I have ever, ever seen. (laughs) Talk about a Spotify album. That's what I might have to dial up after I finish with the coronation. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, operaboxcore at gmail.com. And you can find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. And that is also where you get to put your money where our mouths are. Think about giving back to the OBS on our donate page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell, your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho, and your audio editor is Weston Williams. For co-hosts Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with your mother, assuming you haven't murdered her with the axe you have buried in the backyard. (laughs) We're back with an all-new show next week when we go inside the huddle with baritone Ryan McKinney who's part of the U.S. tour of Jake Heggie's Music of Remembrance. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more. (laughs) What did I say about that damn phone? Join us.